feel good about the place because I feel I always want to be where I think God is doing some great stuff. And I want to be in the center of that. that that's the most exciting thing in life. It really is. When, when, you're, when, you, when you feel like you're in the center of God's will and you're doing God's stuff, there's nothing more exciting than that. And I feel like that here. Like, this is, this is really a God thing. And uh, it's something that we can all be a part of. Be praying for this ministry. You are a part of that. Be asking the Lord, even as we're having a ministry fair here, what is your role here? What would the Lord have you to do? Maybe you're here this morning, you're just checking out. Wonderful. But be open to the Lord. Where, where's the Lord leading you? What would the Lord have you to do? And have a, have a, have a part in this. Jump on the bandwagon because we're on a roll. Praise God. This morning we're going to finish our series on... Uh, uh, is, is this my fault here? Uh, an echo. Echo, 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 echo. Um, maybe this is my hearing. We're finishing up our series on the New Age Movement. And this morning we're going to talk about reincarnation and the age of Aquarius. Let me read two passages for you. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 9, starting with verse 27. Just as a man, anthropos, person, just as a person is destined to die once. Just as a person is destined to die once. Everybody say once. Once. And after that, to face the judgment... So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It says it all. Basically, I could go sit down now and you would have gotten the message. But just to get your money's worth, let's go on. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Tomorrow they'll be signing the treaty between the Palestinian Liberation Organization and Israel. And that's not a bad thing. That is a good thing. I don't want to downplay that at all, but I just want to give a biblical perspective on things here. While people, or this is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, peace, safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And then he goes on to talk about the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, there is uh, so much present in our culture that is contrary to your word and that can influence us and certainly influence non-Christians in ways, in, in, in terms of their mind, to think in patterns that are contrary to your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you would use this message to, first of all, Lord, bring protection for us and information for us that we may be guarded, as your word says, to beware of vain philosophy, but also, Lord, that you'd equip us to reach out to those people who are being deceived. Lord, let your spirit rest here because words do not do it, ideas don't do it, preparation doesn't do it, your spirit does it. And so we ask you to have your way here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You all know, I'm sure, what reincarnation is. You've heard of reincarnation. Maybe there are even people here this morning in this congregation who believe in reincarnation. That wouldn't have been true 20 years ago. I read a study that was done in 1990 that showed this. The first survey I know on, on American beliefs that asked the question about reincarnation. And in 1970, approximately 1 in 20 people gave the doctrine of reincarnation any degree of credibility. They believed in it to any degree. 1 in 20. 
And about half the people surveyed didn't understand what the doctrine meant, what it was all about. In 1990, 9 out of 10 people, actually more than 9, 9.4 people, understood what the doctrine was about. They under, everyone knows what the doctrine means. About 1 in 5 gave it some degree of credibility. What's most surprising is half of those that gave it some degree of credibility were also people who on this survey labeled themselves as committed Christians. It's a doctrine that is working its way into the Christian church. It's been around for a long time in the East. It's, uh, it's the first recorded instance we have of anyone believing this is found in the Vedas, which is the most ancient uh, scriptures of Hinduism written around 600 B.C., um, where it teaches reincarnation. It's been in the East for at least 2,500 years, probably longer than that. But it just now is becoming a part of the American scene. It's spreading very, very fast in our culture. In a nutshell, in case you don't know, let me summarize what the doctrine of reincarnation is about. It's the belief that everything, in its original Hindu version at least, it's the belief that everything has a soul called a jiva. Everything that exists from the smallest molecule to human beings is, it has a jiva. And the goal of a jiva is to work its way back to God, at least to its God realization, because as, as we saw last week, a jiva really is God, but it's God in a, uh, it's God with amnesia, God playing a, a certain role. And, and its goal is to find its way back to God. And the way it finds its way back to God is going through a series, a very, very long series of reincarnations. Uh, very literally, the, the uh, soul of an amoeba is then transmuted into a frog, or, or you know, a plant would come before a frog, and then the soul of a plant is transmuted into a frog, a frog into a cat, a cat into a cow, a cow into a human being, actually a cow into a woman, and then a woman into a man, because it was believed in ancient Hinduism that uh, the, the highest goal a woman could ever have in terms of aspiring to a better reincarnation was to be born as a man. It always surprised me that you have a lot of feminists today who are endorsing the doctrine of reincarnation because they, they're not doing, they're not embracing the original doctrine. That's why in ancient, in, in ancient India, women were supposed to, when a man died and was being cremated, she was supposed to throw her body in the fire uh, because that would kind of give her soul a uh, turbo boost into the next life. And maybe she would... I didn't intend that. And, and, and maybe she would be born as a man. So you evolve through millions and millions and millions of reincarnations. You evolve from inanimate matter to vegetation to, uh, uh, to lower forms of animals to higher forms of mammals and, and, and then into human beings. And even among human beings, there's an entire caste system, according to Hinduism, that you have to work your way up. You start with the class of the untouchables, which are considered to be subhuman people. They live in the most degradating form you can imagine. And then you're born into a working class, the laboring class. And then you're born into the administration class. And then if, you're, if you've been good all the way up, if you've accrued what's called karma, good karma, and you've paid your dues on bad karma, it's the law of, of a cause and effect, then you'll be born into the priestly class as a man, and then you have a hope of being reborn as God. Or actually, when you die, you just won't be reincarnated again because you will have attained your perspective. That's a very, very simplified version of the doctrine, but it will suffice. This is a teaching that has had profound negative effects in India profound negative effects. It's held the culture back strongly in terms of its social rights and in terms of uh, improving the human condition. 
Because if you believe that everything that a person is in terms of their situation in which they're born, and if you believe that everything that a person is physically and all the diseases or misfortune that might happen to them, if you believe that that is the result of some past sin or bad karma that they have, well, then you're not very inclined to be moved towards compassion towards them. So India, up till very recently when it's been influenced by the West, has had very little terms of, uh, in terms of social activism. In fact, you might even be doing someone a disservice if you get them out of their misery because only by going through misery do they have any hope of ever burning off the bad karma of their past lifetime to be born into a better state in the next lifetime. And it's just a little bit ironic that the West, which out of its Judeo-Christian heritage has been leading the world in terms of its advocacy for human rights and leading the world in terms of working to improve the human lot, that we are now on a large scale abandoning our Christian heritage and turning to this doctrine, which has been nothing but pain for India. Figure it out. There's one more aspect of the doctrine of reincarnation that's important for us, and this is a distinctly Western version. It is believed in the West that since everyone's being reborn in a higher form, everyone's progressing, we're all evolving, our consciousness is being expanded, we're, we're uh, you know, getting closer and closer to our God consciousness, and our, our spirituality is improving. Well, since that's happening around the world, it's believed that eventually the whole world will evolve into a higher form of consciousness. And there'll be a time when there won't be any more wars and there won't be any more fightings and there won't be any more pain and there'll only be love and peace and harmony between us. And this is what's called the Age of Aquarius. And New Ages believe that we are at the dawn of the New Age. Some believe that starting in 1988 we entered the New Age. Do you remember that song by the Fifth Dimension in the 60s? This is the dawning of the Age of Aquarius. Age of Aquarius. Harmony and understanding. Sympathy is much abounding. Uh, it's the crystal revelation. It's the mind of liberation. It's the newfound revelation. Aquarius. Aquarius. Let the sun shine. Oh, let it shine. Well, they were way ahead of their time. Most people at the time didn't know what the age of Aquarius was. But a lot of people are now believing that. I'm the sixth dimension when it comes to singing. <laughs> you can understand, I think, why this doctrine is appealing to people in, in the West. It's got a lot of appeal, and, and we need to, to, to look at that honestly. On the one hand, the, the, the doctrine just seems to make, well, it makes a lot of sense. It takes the pressure off of life. It takes the pressure off of life. In this doctrine, you've got a million, billion, limitless chances of getting it right. If you don't get it right this time, maybe next time. If you don't get it right this time, maybe next time. I got music in my head this morning. Remember the Indigo Girls sang this song, uh, some tribute to Galileo, How Long Till My Soul Gets It Right? It's about reincarnation. She's got this fear of flying. Well, that's because in a previous lifetime, someone told her that she crashed an airplane. So now she's got a fear of flying. So she says, How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being reach this kind of height? I call him the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. I didn't get an applause that time. See, I thought I was on, I thought I was on a roll. Well, you get, you've, got, you've got a lot of times to get it right. You've got an infinite number of times to get it right, and that takes the pressure off of life. Nothing that you do, nothing that you think, nothing that you believe will have ultimate consequences. In the end, you're going to someday get it right. And it takes the pressure off of life. It's no big deal. There's no urgency. It's nice. It also feeds into our relativism. 
The relativism that we've seen several weeks ago is rampant in our culture because in the doctrine of reincarnation, every person's at a different spiritual plane. Everybody's, you know, uh, finding their own spiritual path. And so you really just have to, you, you have to define your own morality, your own truth, your own religion. And this doctrine fits in very nicely with that. There's no one absolute right way to go. The doctrine also seems more fair. This is one of its greatest appeals, I think, in America. It just doesn't seem fair that a person would have one chance to get it right, and that all eternity hangs upon what you do in this one lifetime. Better to believe that you've got a million, million, billion unlimited chances to get it right. It just seems more fair. How can everything hang upon a one-shot deal? And how do you explain the inequalities of life? Some people born crippled, some people born whole, some people born in this country, some people born in that country, some people born rich, some people born poor. How do you explain that? Well, the doctrine of, the, of reincarnation has a way of explaining that. And the final thing that's appealing about this doctrine, I'm going to take this, this off because it keeps on sinking my podium. The final thing that, um, that is its appeal, I think, is, is, it, it, is it grounds an optimism about life. Americans always want to be optimistic. And see, in this belief, you can, you can have this optimism that, that things are always going to get better. And right now, the New Age claims to have a lot going in its favor. Look around, the world is in fact becoming a better place, is it not? Why tomorrow the PLO and, and, and with Israel is going to sign a treaty? Who ever would have thought that? A treaty of peace. And communism is quickly ending in the world. And the Cold War is over. <coughs> And we're going to get national health care. <laughs> clearly, we are, clearly, we are more compassionate people than we've ever been. Love really is abounding. We're wiser than we've ever been. We're getting smarter and smarter and more and more spiritual and more and more loving. Don't you see it? Look around. There's evidence all around. Nuclear threat. We're melting the bombs all the time. We're getting rid of them. We clearly are in the age of Aquarius. Two things I want to say this morning in response to that. The first has to do with the last point about this optimism. Is it the case that we have grounds for being optimistic, that we are evolving in a better direction, that we're becoming smarter and wiser and better and, and more compassionate and more loving? It's always good to, to put things in their historical perspective. Let me give you a 20-second shot on history. This isn't the first time that human beings have ever been really optimistic about the future. Our culture really is getting optimistic, especially with the New Age movement. Very optimistic that we really are improving. But this has happened before. A couple of examples. In the 17th century, at the end of the Seventy Years' War, it was a religious war where all the religions were fighting one another. They, uh, the leaders of the different religions got together and they, they, uh, they uh, arrived at what was called the Peace of Westphalia in the 17th century. If you read this document and you read the literature of the time, these people really believed that that treaties would, would end all wars. Clearly they believed we have seen the harm of religions fighting one another. And there'll be no more fighting, no more wars, no more bloodshed. We've grown up finally, they thought. But it was an optimism that was short-lived because in the next hundred years, the next hundred years was the bloodiest hundred years of human history up to that point. Four major revolutions broke out around the world, starting with the French Revolution, and it was the bloodiest hundred years that the world's ever seen. The optimism was not founded, though they really believed it at the time. At the end of the Civil War, there was an incredible optimism that captured America. Finally, America's united. And this war has been the bloodiest, most vicious, most vile uh, war we've ever seen. And so surely we have learned now 
that peace is in everyone's best interest. Surely we've learned now that killing just isn't going to work. And going into this century, at the end of the 19th century and the earliest 20th century, there was unprecedented optimism. Science was developing new technologies that were helping uh, humanity, and, and, and they were developing uh, vaccinations and medicine for, for people. And there was the belief that technology and our own wisdom and our own smarts were going to bring us into a sort of utopia. Unprecedented optimism. Some Christians actually be, thought that the millennium began in 1900 because peace seems so self-evident. But this century has been the bloodiest century that human history has ever known up to this point. In fact, I'm told that more people were killed in World War II than in all the other wars put together. With World War II... Well, World War I, they thought that was the war to end all wars. That's what it was called. And the signers of the Versailles Treaties had an incredible optimism that, that now for sure we've seen a global war, we've seen how terrible it is. Now surely we will arrive at peace. But within 25 years, World War II broke out. And the designers of the atom bomb dropped on Hiroshima thought that this would be the ultimate deterrent of war. Clearly, we've gone to the point now where it's in no one's interest to have, have, uh, have war because we have the capability of annihilating the planet. 100,000 people in a split second. And they thought that the atom bomb would actually end all wars. But as you know, we had Korea, and then we had Vietnam. The Khmer Rouge killed millions of Cambodians. We've had the war in Iraq, and the war in Bosnia, and the war in El Salvador, and the bloodshed in South Africa and around the world. Frankly, not a whole lot has changed. Where's the change? Where's the groans for optimism? Where's the unequivocal goodness that we're aspiring towards? How can anyone believe that we're entering into a new age of awareness and, and God consciousness when America in the last 20 years has quadrupled the incidence of violent crime, of, of murder and of rape? Quadrupled in 20 years. Where's the evidence of this flowering peace? When our inner city schools more, more look more like prisons than educational faci facilities and kids have to worry about being shot because they've got a starter jacket on, where's this, where's this evolving consciousness of love and peace? I don't see it very clearly. When you consider that we've got in this country increasing racial tension, in spite of all that the civil rights movement has done, we've got increasing tension. Our culture is becoming increasingly fragmented to the point where it's hardly recognizable as a single culture right now. And the worse the economic conditions that get, the more those racial uh, tensions increase. And I don't see, a, I'm not really optimistic about where the economy is going to go. It's hard to be optimistic. When 75, I just saw this this last week, 75% of our teenagers before the age of 18 are involved in, in sexual activity. One in six teenagers in our country has got a sexually transmitted disease. One in three of our children is born to a teenage unwed mother. One and a half unborn children killed every year. I thought we were entering an age of peace. I thought we were supposed to be improving in our spirituality, but I don't see much evidence of that. And now we have Jocelyn Elders as a Surgeon General. Excuse me for being pessimistic. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, but I did. Oh. I think she's a parent's nightmare. You know, if your kid's in public schools, this is the most influential person in terms of setting the policies for our public schools. And she believes that it's more important to teach a kid what to do in the back seat of a car before we teach him what to do in the front seat of a car. Excuse me. You see, you can change the face of evil, you can change the look of evil, but evil is still evil. And you can change the face, the disguise of sin, but still is still sin. And the society will never improve beyond where the individuals of that society are. 
A society is just a conglomeration of individuals. And until the heart of people is changed, until the soul of people is changed, you're not going to have, you're not going to have permanent, lasting change in the society. It's impossible. But the Bible says that the heart of human beings is sinful. The heart of human beings is dark. The heart of human beings, Jeremiah tells us, is desperately wicked. And all the programs in the world and all the funding in the world and all the education in the world doesn't change the human heart. All the schemes and the dreams and the planning and the optimism in the world doesn't dress the human heart. And until that is changed, you will not have peace. Not lasting peace, not lasting righteousness in the society. I sound like a real uh, negative, cynical, doomsayer kind of person right now. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, the truth is, as I'm not cynical at all. I am incredibly optimistic. I have a cynical side to me, but right now I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because I know one, and you know one, who can change the human heart. One who can make a difference in people's lives. I'm optimistic because the Bible tells me that the New Agers are right about one thing. They're right about one thing. Their hope, which every human being has, is not totally ill-founded because there is coming a time when, when, when there'll be no more war. That's a true thing. And there's coming a time when, when, when there will be peace. It's coming a time when there'll be no more bloodshed, there'll be no violent, more violent crime. Children will no longer suffer. There's coming a time like that, a coming a time of love and peace and joy upon the earth, but it won't come because we're evolving into it. It won't come because we're getting smarter and smarter. It won't come because we're getting more and more compassionate. It won't come by our own striving. But the verse I read to you this morning tells us it will come when the Lord comes back. When the Lord sets up his kingdom here on earth, then we'll have peace and safety. But not until... When the Lord says the time for this interlude is done, the time for this period in world history is over, then there'll be peace and safety. When every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father, then there'll be safety. When we shall be like him, when we shall behold his glory, and when the foes of what is right and what is good and what is holy are vanquished, then there'll be safety. I'm optimistic. And I believe that Christians need to, as the Bible says, pray for world peace. That's, that's a good thing. What's going on tomorrow if they actually sign it is a good thing. Pray that it happens. Pray for peace in South Africa. Pray for peace in Mozambique. Pray for peace around the world, but don't hang your hope on it. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And pray for President Clinton and pr pray for Yitzhak Rabin, is that his name, and Yahasa Arafat and Omar Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein. Pray that there'll be peace there. That's a good thing. God wills that. But I wouldn't, hang my, I wouldn't hang a whole lot of hope, a whole lot of trust in what goes on in the White House and what goes on in Lebanon and what goes on in Palestine and what goes on in Israel. I hang my hope on what goes on with Jesus Christ. And my hope is that, my, my knowledge is that he's coming back. And then we shall have peace. So we can be optimism, even, optimistic even while we are realistic with the world's situation. Let me respond, secondly, to reincarnation, the doctrine of reincarnation. It would be nice to believe, it would be nice to believe that we've got an unlimited number of chances to get it right. Wouldn't it? It'd be nice to believe that everybody will eventually get it right. It'd be nice to believe that there's no mistake that you can do that can't be undone. It'd be nice to believe that there's no consequences to your behavior that are ultimate. It's sort of like cosmic optimism. The question is this. Everyone admits that it'd be nice, but the question is, is it true? Because many times we can wishfully will something that in fact turns out to be false. 
As I look around the world, look at, look at life, it seems to me that nothing could be farther from the truth than that we've got an, an unlimited number of chances to get it right. Just consider several things. Look around. Let's look at life and maybe discern something about what the afterlife is like by looking at life itself. Isn't it the case that the decisions we make are very, very important? Isn't it the case that sometimes we, 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 we make decisions in a, in a split moment that determine the course of our life? Isn't it the case that basically who we are right now as we sit here this morning is largely the result of crucial decisions we've made at crucial points in our life as we've taken uh, uh, opportunities, windows of opportunities that have presented themselves to us? And we decide to go this way or we decide to go that way and the decisions we make have sometimes irreversible consequences. A young woman, 16 years old, has a little too much to drink at a party and ends up in the sack with somebody she doesn't even know and she gets pregnant. That has lifelong repercussions that are irreversible. And even if she tries to deny those consequences, as our society seems so prone to do, that there's no consequences to your behavior that you can't get out of, even if she tries to get out of those consequences by having an abortion, it will still have lifelong consequences for her and for the child. Our decisions are many times irreversible. I knew, a, I knew a guy one time, he had dreams of being an Olympic swimmer. He was a state champion in high school. An incredible athlete, fun-loving, vivacious, vibrant individual. Went out riding on his motorcycle one time. He chose not to wear his helmet. Someone else chose to have a couple of beers and go for a ride. That guy hit him on the motorcycle. He flies off the motorcycle and lands on his head severely brain damaged, in a wheelchair, crippled up, can't talk and can't think straight the rest of his life. Irreversible consequences from one decision. Don't tell me that decisions don't have consequences that are sometimes irreversible. Man happens to take an extra look at the secretary and before you know it, they have an affair that has lifelong, sometimes irreversible consequences for the marriage, for the secretary, for the man, and for the children. You can't sometimes pick up the pieces. And isn't it the case? Isn't it the case that the decisions we make in life form our character sometimes in ways that are irreversible? Isn't it the case that who we are this morning is, is the result of a myriad of decisions we've made along the way? Isn't it the case that the older we get, the, more, the, the farther down a road you travel, the harder it is to get off that road and the more likely it is that, that, the more unlikely it is that you'll ever get off that road? It doesn't seem to be the case that, the, that by multiplying the chances for change increases the likelihood of change. It seems to me that the more you multiply the chances for change, the less likely you are to change. I became a Christian when I was 17. I had, a, as a 17-year-old, a lot of options ahead of me. I was free. My, my character, my mind, my, my, my spirit was not yet solidified, and so I had a lot of options, and I chose to become a Christian. And now I'm 36, 19 years later. I can't believe that. 19 years I've been a Christian. And while it may be hard for you to believe, my wife will tell you that I, I, I'm kind of set in my ways. I've got some strong opinions about some things. <laughs> Which, incidentally, you don't have to agree with. I mean, really, when, when, I, when I shoot off the hip about somebody, you know, that's just off. You're free to not agree. If you don't like it, just, just let it go. Okay, so... I'm set in my ways. I've got some strong opinions. I've got some strong convictions. And it's very unlikely that I'll ever give up my, Christ my Christianity at this point and become a non-Christian. But what if I had chosen not to become a Christian when I was 17 and gone the route that I was going? 
I have to believe that I'd be just as set in my ways as I am right now. And the likelihood of my ever becoming a Christian would have probably been as, as likely as my now becoming a non-Christian, but I'd be on the other side of the fence. The older you get, the more set you become. Your character becomes formed. Your decisions over a long period of time form who you are. And it becomes less and less likely that you'll ever change. And you can multiply that out throughout all eternity, which the Bible, in fact, does. And it just means that you become more and more and more solidified in, in who you're becoming. That's the awesome reality that we're in. I knew a woman one time, I shared this about a year ago, but most of you weren't here a year ago, so I'll share it again. The nice thing about a fast-growing church is you can repeat your stories, and most of the people are going to say, that's new. So <laughs> a lady was 80 years old. I, I, I met her when she was 80 years old. She was the most cankerous, bitter, uh, vile woman that I'd ever met. Just radiated ugliness. It was just uh, eerie to be around her. And she told me her story. She showed me her picture when she was 23. Her engagement picture. Beautiful young uh, woman. But a man stood her up. A man stood her up. Uh, uh, three days before she was to be married, her fiancé ran off with her sister. And she chose bitterness. How humiliated she was. How hurt. How wounded she was. So she chose bitterness. And though her, her ex-fiancé and her sister repeatedly tried to get her to forgive them, to say they're sorry, to make amends, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, they tried to make amends up to the point when they died. And she still refused, choosing bitterness over love, choosing bitterness over forgiveness, until finally she didn't have to choose bitterness anymore. The bitterness chose her. She became her decisions. That's the way life goes. It's a one-way direction. We become the decisions that we make. It's also true of the opposite. A person chooses love and forgiveness, maybe in the face of incredible obstacles, maybe, maybe in the face of, uh, of persecution and in the face of abuse, they choose love. And it's hard and it's difficult. But the more they choose it, the more they become it. Until finally, they don't choose it at all. It's just who they are. They become a loving nature. The farther down a road you go, the harder it is to get off that road and the more unlikely it is that you'll ever get off that road. And it's just the same way with the Lord. When a person chooses to make Jesus Christ Lord of their life, they have to choose it, and sometimes it's a difficult decision. But the more you make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, the better you get at that, the more Christ-like you become until it gradually, over your lifetime, becomes part of your nature to live with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And his joy and peace and love gradually become yours. But the opposite is also true. The more you resist the Holy Spirit, like lifting weights, the stronger you get at resisting the Holy Spirit. And the first time, it's really, really hard. The second time, the 30th time, the 100th time, it gets easier and easier. And the Bible makes it clear that there is a point of no return in this whole thing. Decisions have consequences, and sometimes those consequences are inescapable. They're, they're irreversible. It's what's called the sin against the Holy Spirit. The Bible warns, it warns it this way. You can be so good at resisting the Holy Spirit. You can get so strong. Your eyes can get so dark, and your heart can get so cold that there's no longer any chance that you'll ever want to accept his lordship. See, life is like a window of opportunity. It's a one-shot deal, but windows of opportunities don't last forever. And the longer you go in life, as all of us know from experience, the smaller that window becomes, and death is the closing of all windows. You've got to jump through the window while you've got the opportunity here, while your heart is still open and your mind is still open and the Holy Spirit's tugging on you. You've got to make a decision here. That's what life's about, to decide whether or not you'll be with the Lord. 
But you don't have forever to do it. And the belief that you've got a million and a trillion and unlimited number of times and chances to get it right is a lie. It takes the pressure off right now, but it's sheer deception. deception. And everything we know about life, everything we know about human nature tells you that. It's a one-shot deal. Life is, is like a courtship, you know, when, when, when you go out with a woman, you go out with a man, you court, you date, you, you're kind of trying it out. And it may be that you'll get married. Depending on what you do in that courtship determines whether or not you'll get married. But the courtship doesn't last forever. Some men have tried to make it last that long, but it doesn't. <laughs> the window of opportunity gradually closes and the woman says, forget it, I'm going somewhere else. Sometimes women do it too, but I've never heard of that. I just wanted to, I wanted to be PC. Hey, we're the, guy, we're the ones who have trouble with the commitments most of the time. I, I don't know. I, I, stereotype, stereotype. But I'm a man, so I can blast myself. The courtship doesn't last forever, but the marriage does. And depending on what you do in that courtship depends, uh, determines what's going to happen with you and this, this other person, and so it is with the Lord. This life is a short prelude. This is a, this is a courtship with Jesus Christ. He's all, already pledged his love for us, already pledged his allegiance to us, but the question is, will we reciprocate? This is the courtship time, a prelude to a marriage, a prelude to love. The question is, will you decide to be married or not? Or to change the metaphor a little bit, this life is like the development of a baby in the womb. And what, do you, what goes on in the womb determines how that baby will be born. If that baby is, is hit or if that baby is attacked, that will greatly affect the outcome of the birth. If that baby gets right nutrients or not, that determines how the baby is going to be born. We are in a very, very short, maybe 50, maybe 60, maybe 70 year window of opportunity where you are being developed in the, in, in the womb of life. We haven't really even begun to live yet. This is a prelude. The real life is going to happen when we're born, which is when we die. The question is, will you be born... In, I want to ask this for every person here this morning that's not a Christian. I just want to, I want to come clean with you. I'll put all the cards on the table. I want you to hear it. The question is, will you be born as God wants you to be born? Will you be born in eternity, the kind of being that God always wanted human beings to be, born into his love and born into his joy and born into his peace and born into his glory? And that happens when you grab onto the umbilical cord of life, if I can stretch the analogy just a little bit, and grab onto Jesus Christ, who is your lifeline. Or will you resist? The window of opportunity closes gradually. I never know when in a person's life it closes. No one can, but it does close. Will you resist and be born in what would, from a biblical perspective, be seen as a stillborn state, a deformed state? The choice is yours, but it's not an eternal choice. It's a one-shot deal. So the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Once to die, and after that, the judgment. Finally, is it fair? Is it fair? It doesn't seem fair, does it? I can be honest about that. It doesn't strike me as fair. One-shot deal. Some people are born in Christian nations, and you hear Jesus Christ from the day you're born. Other people are born in, in parts of the world where they never hear Jesus Christ. Is it fair? One-shot chance. The doctrine of reincarnation is invented to explain the unfairness of life the inequalities of life. It's a human ingenious attempt to try to equal the score out. I want you to notice that it does it though by indicting everybody. Because if you don't have what someone else has, it's your own fault. And if you're crippled and someone else is healthy, it's your own fault. And if you're brain damaged and someone else isn't, it's your own fault because you're all working off past sins. That's not that attractive of, a, of an alternative after all. The biblical answer is this. God is just and God is fair. God knows 
all the variables. God knows a person's heart. God knows how we're all born in different search situations. And the relationship that God has with uh, an individual is a universe unto itself. God judges people in terms of the light they have. He alone knows the standard that he holds people to. He alone knows the heart of people. And there's nothing in the Bible that would ever get us to believe that someone's going to be lost by accident, out of misfortune. They weren't born in the right place or they missed one opportunity or whatever. God is fair. He's a just God. But we are not God, and so we don't see it. We don't know all the variables. And so at this point, we have to trust. In the end, we'll see that it's fair. Right now, our perspective is limited. But the final thing to be said is this. God is not fair so much as he is more than fair. He's gracious. God is gracious. The doctrine of reincarnation says that for everything you do, you have to pay for it. You have to pay the price of your own sin. You have to redo all the wrongs done. You have karma that you've got to work off. The Bible would, says this. If that were true, we'd all be lost. Because I have done things, and you probably have too, though you may not know it, things that are irreversible. I know I've harmed people that, that maybe will have irreversible consequences in their life. You can't pick up the pieces sometimes in your life. Your life's scrambled eggs and you can't redo it. The past is written in stone and there's no way you can re revamp that. But the good news is this. In spite of all that, God wants to forgive you. And he pays the price for all the consequences of the wrong we've done so that we can be saved. And that's not an if and thing and it's not something that's going to take 14 billion millennia to take care of. It happens now the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. I didn't plan my sermon this way, but I, I'm finding myself making altar calls here to those who are here this morning and are, are not Christian. And I want to challenge you finally with this. As I dismiss, we'll stand and close in prayer. I want to challenge you who are here this morning and you've never made a public profession of faith. The Bible says, believe with your mouth or believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you shall be saved. If you've never done that, prayed with somebody the prayer that accepts Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I implore you. There's, got, there's a window here. And I can't make any guarantees about the future, but there's a window here now. And I encourage you not to get better at resisting the Holy Spirit, but to give in to that voice that you know is calling you in your heart. And come forward.